You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Peter Straub is the author of Ghost Story, Shadowland, Floating Dragon, Mystery, Blue Rose, The Hellfire Club, Lost Boy, Lost Girl, In the Night Room, and many others. He recently edited the American Library edition of American Fantastic Tales. With Stephen King, he wrote The Talisman and Black House. His forthcoming novel is A Dark Matter. Thank you for joining me, Peter. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. Peter, I, I wanted to start off talking about this American Fantastic Tales because Good. this is like the, I think, the, the homo sapiens almost uh, of American fantastic literature. It's the mm. first re- in, regarded as an intelligent being. <laughs> <laughs> it's the end, apex of a long evolution. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Um, uh, the, the the history of horror or supernatural writing or fantastic stories is very kind of spotty in America because it's it's always been here, but it wasn't until not very long ago that it was separated out as a separate thing um, by itself. I think when Melville or Hawthorne especially wrote stories of this kind, they were just writing stories. They 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 didn't at all think of themselves as writing genre stories. Um, as soon as it became defined as a genre, it was instantly uh, assigned a, a, a place on the ladder very far down from uh, what people considered the serious writers. Um, one th- very good thing about the Library of America in general is that they, they are generous. The, the editor-in-chief, Jeffrey O'Brien, has a real affection for crime stories, for pulp fiction, and for horror stories. Uh, for all in science fiction, he's a um, he's a very broad-minded guy, so he asked me uh, years ago now to edit their volume of H.P. Lovecraft, which I took to be a sign of actual imagination on his part, that he was including Lovecraft in the in the sacred circle with Fitzgerald, uh, Henry James, etc., Faulkner. Um, you know, so it's interesting that you say that that imaginative literature required a man of imagination to recognize it as literature. Yeah, absolutely. That's really true. Uh, the, the people who uh, love this kind of thing uh, know that it is l- literature, but uh, people on the other side of the fence uh, really have resisted uh, th- that understanding for a long, long time and, and probably continue to, uh, to do so. Uh, it's good that we have this uh, beautiful, uh, immense beachhead, um, and I was really pleased and honored uh, to be asked uh, to supply it. It's a fantastic reading experience. One of the things I loved about reading this book was we start out reading each story individually, but soon they acquire, a, become a spectrum, a, 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 mm-hmm. a, a continuum, and, and it builds into this really marvelous uh, vision of American history and of mm-hmm. American writing um, from, uh, what's the earliest story? Uh, the earliest story is by Charles Brockton Brown, and it's from early in the 18th century. 
to or it's so far late in the 18th century sorry to to a story published in 2007 that's a huge spectrum of history yeah. isn't it yeah it's immense uh, I, I I wish we could have found something from the 17th century in America but um, we we couldn't there, there there weren't many short stories written in anyhow I don't think and the rule the ground rules uh, that we were operating with uh, forbade uh, using ex excerpts from novels. But, uh, there, yeah, there's an immense uh, panoply of stuff, that, and it shows that uh, this kind of writing has been alive and well in America really from the beginning. It shows that it's a natural means of expression. It's a, it's a natural um, palette. You know, it, it, has, it gives you extra colors that you, that you don't get from uh, mimetic fiction. It, one thing that I find really fascinating uh, about your selections is just the immense scholarship in history that, that you must have gone through to, to pick this list. Talk about creating your master list and then subtracting down from the <laughs> best of all possible worlds to what you were allowed to publish. Yeah, I started off with the, uh, at least uh, twi twice the number of names. Uh, they, they, they were very happy with me at first. Because for for a year, I, I I sent them emails proposing various people and various stories. And 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 uh, uh, the uh, president of the Library of America, Max Rudin, uh, came up to me one day. He said, "Peter, keep those emails coming." So I did. Um, in the end, of course, I had way too much material, and I had to go through uh, several rounds of cuts. The, the, the first level was not really all that painful, and what I cut were uh, oddities like a story called At the Gate by Mary Jo Klosser, which has to do with dogs in the afterlife standing around the entrance to a huge cave waiting for their masters <laughs> to appear. Uh, the, the, the dogs these men had as children are waiting for to say, oh, there he is, there he is, see, I told you about him. That, I mean, I, that story was so strange and goofy. That I, that I put up a brief fight for it, but I lost. I had a lot of help uh, from a man named Stefan Jamanowitz, who is an immense expert. I did tons of research on the web, and um, uh, I, I ordered many, many books from abooks.com, which were, uh, on the whole, not very expensive because they're not very much in demand. But I got really, really great stuff that way. Um, uh, Gertrude Atherton was a... A uh, good writer of ghost stories. She, she wrote much else besides, and was uh, quite a famous writer at the time. But uh, her ghost stories have survived, if anything has, and I was very pleased to have one in. Mary Wilkins Freeman is not well known. Uh, Emma Frances Dawson is all but completely forgotten. Yet she she uh, published um, uh, a story, a book of stories called The Itinerant Lodging House. Um, Emma Frances Dawson lived in San Francisco at the time of the quake. Uh, so that was 1905, I think. She was a protege of Ambrose Bierce's, and after the quake, she, she was a bit unstrung, and she moved to Palo Alto into a little tiny house and made a living as a music teacher, and then uh, I think starved to death one day. Uh, but uh, that, her story is very strange, but very, very much worth reading, and, and that kind of thing is true exactly of, of uh, 20 or 30 of these people, most of whom were women. I thought that was really interesting. Um, as I say, as you read each story, there's a, a kind of accretion, I guess, 
that we that we get this uh, a vision of America that's not the mm. America that we get out of reading any other literature, and I think this is speaks to the real power of this kind of tale. I think so too. It uh, it certainly ab- addresses a profound lurking unease at the center of the American soul, uh, a, 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 a fear of losing one's own self uh, that seems to have dogged the Puritans and and. Ho- haunted Americans uh, all, all down the line from um, uh, Hawthorne to H- Henry James and beyond. Uh, the world as seen in these stories is dark and threatening. Uh, there are villages in New England that are surrounded entirely by forest. Uh, that, that would do something to your mind, I think. It, and, and it would let you know that there are other things, other forces, other kinds of lives impinging on your own which are unseen, but are certainly not unfelt. Uh, in America, we don't much want to acknowledge those kinds of perceptions. They, uh, they, they disturb our willed optimism. And I'm, I'm, I don't much hold with willed optimism. I think it's a false trail. Uh, one of the things that, that I, I think about this book that's really uh, powerful is that a lot of these authors wrote a lot of different kinds of stories. That mm-hmm. that these authors weren't just pigeonholed as as being genre fiction writers, right. and, and but yet the genre fiction is what survived. That's that's a very good observation. Um, on the whole, I think genre fiction r- retains its readership and it retains its uh, popularity for a longer time than uh, other other kinds of writing do. We still read Sherlock Holmes, uh, but uh, if, you, if you were to look around and see who were the best sellers were at the time and who was uh, considered an important writer, I think all of those people probably disappeared. Um, people still read Dracula, uh, whereas, uh, you know, it's, it's very rare for any work of literature to survive as a living entity um, 50 to 100 years after it was written. Most of the stuff falls away. Very, very good genre writing, especially crime stories and ghost stories, have a real chance of hanging in there and, be, and remaining a part of the dialogue. And I think this is because, uh, as you say, our American experience is not the way it's portrayed. We are seen as willful, as scientific, as logical, mm-hmm. but our lives are anything but that. They're fraught with emotions, and sometimes the only way to deal with emotions is to get them outside of yourself and say, I'm haunted. Yeah, that's right. Irrationality has a great role in American life, although we, d- we don't like to uh, think of that, I imagine. But uh, wars are not the product of rational minds. Uh, certainly what happens to soldiers in wars does not uh, cultivate, uh, a, you know, a benign, observant rationality. What we're left with is uh, passion, uh, dreaming, uh, night sweats, <laughs> all these kinds of things, which in fact are very rich. Now, um, as a as a reader and as a, a writer of the fantastic, mm. um, we have some kind of perceptions at, at, of fantasy, and these days our perceptions of fantasy pretty much fall into one writer, J.R.R. Tolkien. Well, that's right. But the, fi- the literature of the fantastic, especially as here, is much wider and, and much more richer, I think, than that limited definition suggests. I would say so myself. Um, 
J.R.R. Tolkien was a magnificent uh, writer who, who invented a, a fabulous world uh, that, that he has been badly imitated uh, for 40 years is not his fault. <laughs> and some of the people who want to trundle along in his wake are, are really pretty good. Uh, but there's an e equal number of people who do nothing but describe, but dis say that uh, the night crashed through the foliage. They, they, they don't know enough about uh, plants and uh, grasses to actually get specific. Uh, it's always foliage. Um, that the the kind of fantastic vision oh, of yes. the fantastic in this book is much wider and it's more about real people. It is. Uh, I I have many friends who uh, are would call themselves fantasy writers or would say that their work begins in the in the tradition of fantasy and I tried to include them in the book. They they didn't fit really and I I knew that even while I wanted to keep them in because their work is very different in tone. It doesn't have that sort of darkness that we're talking about. Um, Je Jeffrey O'Brien at one point just stopped me in my tracks and he said, we're not, going to, we're not going to print any fantasy stories in this collection, even though it's called American Fantastic Tale. What he meant was tales from another richer, darker tradition altogether, and an older one as well. Uh, talk about uh, some of your favorite some of the, the older stories that you unearthed that just really knocked your socks off that you might not have ever encountered before. <laughs> uh, well, I wish I had the book here so I could refresh my memory, but uh, a couple uh, do stand out for sure. There's a novel, there's a, a story by Mary Wilkins Freeman called Luella Miller, which is a very um, unsettling story with, without being at all literal. It, um, it describes the effect upon a New England village of a female vampire, a woman who anyhow has immense seductive power over men as to render them helpless before her so that anything she wants, some man is gonna jump out of the woodwork to, uh, to do in, in, in hopes of pleasing her. And uh, systematically, this woman more or less destroys the lives of almost every man in town until finally she herself is um, uh, uh, demolished by some sort of spiritual thunderbolt of some kind. I don't quite remember what, but she, she, she's destroyed at the end. Um, that is a rhyme. That story is a perfect rhyme for one by John Cheever that I printed called Torch Song, a very beautiful story that was published in The New Yorker about um, the, the account by a young man from, I believe, Ohio, who, having moved to New York, discovers um, on, a, on the same subway or on a bus or, or some, some similar situation, a woman from his hometown whom he'd always rather liked. And the, the story follows his observing, her relationships with a series of men of, of decreasing uh, respectability, of decreasing income, all of whom are utterly destroyed, perhaps by their contact with her. And at the end, when our man has, has been divorced and uh, is jobless and is living in a kind of a fleabag rooming house, she calls him up and says, I, I, think I, want to, I think I want to come help you. I want to move in with you and see if I can take care of you. And the last paragraph, the man throws all his belongings in the suitcases and scrams, thinking, I don't want to see that obscene creature in here. So that, that, that uh, again, is... is um, um, a, a vampire story in which the, the vampire doesn't have teeth and doesn't drink blood, but does destroy um, 
human lives. Another great story that I knew very well beforehand is the Henry James uh, story, The Jolly Corner. Uh, many would have elected to run um, The Turn of the Screw, which is a very famous uh, ghost story in, in which the ghosts may be projections of a, of a disturbed mind. The Jolly Corner is really, I think, more exciting and um, involves the, the sight of, um, of, an, of an alternate version of uh, a man's self. Uh, a, a writer, a man like James, who has lived in, an American who has lived in England most of his adult life, comes back to New York and, and takes possession of the house in which he was raised, which is now, it's in good shape, but it's empty. He visits, he walks the halls, he, he looks at the paintings and the, wonders what his life would have been like had he stayed in this country. And eventually he notices that there's another being in this house. And uh, after many, many attempts and various pre preparations, the thing steps out of, uh, of the shadow and confronts him, stands in front of him, and he sees the far more uh, uh, beat up, ruffinly, wealthy character that he would have been had he stayed in New York. He's missing a couple of fingers and he suspects because they'd been shot off by a bullet. <laughs> and he's a rough customer. He's, he's horrifying to our hero, who's a very civilized Jamesian man. Um, and uh, the story has a very sweet kind of downbeat ending in which a woman says, well, you know, I would have loved him too because after all, he's you. Uh, thereby giving our boy a little grace um, to, with which to deal with his, uh, the self he might have been. You know, you mentioned a couple names there, John Cheever, Henry James. These aren't, and there's many more in this mm -hmm. book. There are a lot of writers that we wouldn't might necessarily associate with this kind of fiction. And I think that's what speaks to the power of the kind of fiction itself. I think so, too. Uh, almost, I was going to say almost every good writer in America has done this at one point. Um, that isn't exactly true, but, but a lot have. Even John Updike. The most, uh, the writer, the greater American writer, most tied to the literal surface of things, uh, wrote the, the Witches of Eastwick. Um, it's, it was his only excursion in, into the sort of paranormal or the fantastic, but it was a very good excursion, very worthy. Um, it's, it's, it seems surprising because uh, this work of this kind is assigned so much a, a lesser value, yet, yet it was not... Uh, of diminished value at all to the people who took it up. Now, um, <clears throat> your own work as a writer is equally uh, liable to be part of a canon in the future. <laughs> um, and I wanted to talk to you about your forthcoming book, A Dark Matter. Okay. Um, this is based on a kind of a classic, uh, a, a small but I, I think a classic kind of trope, this idea of the occult experiment performed by students. Mm -hmm. uh, I, the the novel uh, the course of the, the heart, course of the heart by M. John, M. Harrison. M. John Harrison just when I read that book that just that seared my soul. It's and, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. the uh, The original version of that novel was a short story mm -hmm. called The Great God Pan, which is in that same Dennis Etchison anthology. Mm, boy, what a, what a great! Yeah, it knocked me off my chair when I read it. And of course, that title, The Great God Pan, is the title of a great Arthur Machen story about people, young men who mess with something, uh, that, uh, both occult and scientific, which has ruinous effects. Um, 
I love Arthur Mockett. <laughs> me too. Oh, I mean, yeah. and that story, that story sh- helped shaped me for sure. And I, I probably read it when I was around 12. Mm. It was in uh, uh, Great Tales of Terror and the Supernatural, a modern library giant edited by Phyllis Cerf and some man, I forget whom. But um, I carried that book around with me as though it were, were my Bible. <laughs> I took it to Boy Scout camp one summer. <laughs> Anyhow, um, it it is a, it's a it seems to me a very rich sort of situation, and it may be worthy by now of being called a trope. What it what it is based on is my very uh, precise memories of certain fraudulent guys in their 30s who came through Madison, Wisconsin, when I was an undergraduate there in the mid 60s. I graduated from the University of Wisconsin in 1965. I set this in 1966 for, I don't know why, it just, uh, just seemed like a good idea at the time. Anyhow, these, these, these people would show up, they, they, their, their arrival would be heralded by a little advance party of uh, kids going around saying, oh, Arthur's coming to town, you know, well, we have to, you have to treat him right, He's, he, he has secret knowledge of uh, infinite things. And then, the, and then the guru would arrive, and he'd be good-looking. He'd be uh, slightly weather-beaten, a uh, little road-dusty, and he would spin out gorgeous, uh, wild, violent occult stories um, uh, to as many young women as possible. And these guys would move in with somebody. They would immediately start using everything their host had, and in some cases... Uh, presenting the host's friends with certain possessions. I, I knew you'd like his Charlie Parker record, so I'm giving it to you. After all, everything is everything. I remember a guy saying once, everything is everything, meaning I can take it and you, you're not allowed to complain. This also went for girlfriends. <laughs> if everything was everything, she was too. Um, so I, at first I was a little charmed, and then I became very suspicious and annoyed by these dudes. So I have one uh, uh, great example of the type appearing and uh, converting uh, or attracting a group mainly of high school students who just happen to be hanging around the campus hoping to be mistaken for college students. And there is uh, a kind of ritual that the man puts on. And while he has come close at other times to some kind of mysterious, uh, partial, obscure breakthrough, this time, he does achieve, for a moment, a very, very strange breakthrough. His, his, his ceremony, his ritual, actually works. And the consequences are disastrous. Everybody's affected in a negative way for the rest of their lives. And um, the, the, the matter of the book uh, concerns, concerns the actions of the husband of, of one of these uh, teenagers to discover what actually in the end really did happen and he just goes around talks to one after another and um, has odd little adventures en route and gets really partial mixed up uh, false or accurate stories until the end when his wife says okay I'm just going to say this once don't interrupt me I'll tell you exactly what happened but you have to let me go until I'm done <laughs> and then she and then she she blows their heads off with this amazing story now, um, there are two versions of this book. Yes. Tell us about the, the subterranean press version, because I'm one of those guys who always likes the 12-inch remix. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what this is, all right. Um, it, it took me a long time to write, and uh, it, it's, uh, it was a very, very odd book. I, when, I, when I had finished doing my own revisions, 
I figured that I had the, the, the book that would be published. It was extremely, it was really extravagant. It was wild, it was very, very weird. The, I, I knew it was weird when I was writing it, but when I, when I began really to edit it and read it straight through from beginning to end, it was much, much weirder than I had imagined. Anyhow, I, th I thought there was a point to that, and it was about uh, the same set of events that I just described to you, except that sur surrounding this original occult thing and the people's accounts were any number of other weirdnesses to kind of back it up or reinforce it or to destabilize the, 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 the fictional world that it, that it came out of. So I rather liked this. I, I gave it to my editor. My editor was appalled. Um, the editor I had at the time, she, she didn't like it. It wasn't what she was expecting, though I had done my best to prepare her by, by, by writing her lengthy emails describing the ways in which this was different from what she was probably expecting. And it was different from most things I had done in the past, but this is what I wanted to do now. Anyhow, editors apparently don't pay attention to authors' emails. And uh, she eventually came back with this heartbroken litany of complaints and errors. Uh, we, 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 we had a, a, a set to a, 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 a disagreement that finally in the end we, we, we worked around to a, a, a decent compromise. Uh, I, I give up some things, and she, she had to deal with the fact that the book was indeed very, very strange. So when I was halfway through this uh, very laborious and intricate bit of re rewriting, the publishing company got mixmastered, and it was, um, it was pulled and, and, and warped and distorted into an unrecognizable shape and my editor was translated out to become the editorial director of another firm in, in the Random House group. So then for a couple of weeks I had no editor. So I just kept along working on the compromised version that the first editor and I had worked out. The second editor came along and she too was flabbergasted and flummoxed and despairing and uh, uh, distressed by what I had done to what she thought was going to be a beautiful 1980s horror novel. You know, a straightforward, like early Stephen King or early me. Um, again, I had another, another meltdown, and then we had another crisis, and uh, then I realized that this woman had worked very hard on explaining to me where I'd gone wrong. And so I, 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 once I saw things from her point of view, I, 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 I could fix everything. And I took her to lunch and we talked about what I was doing and what I wanted to do and how I was trying to accomplish this very unusual kind of goal. So then everything was very smooth between us and there was affection between us. And I just, um, I, I, I put the book through the Mixmaster one more time and smoothed out even more stuff. And then I had the, the book that we uh, are, uh, the, the, the book that will be, will be published early next year but I still had in my mind this woolly, bizarre, eccentric thing that I had made and had been satisfied with. So I, uh, I made an agreement with a small press publisher to do a limited edition of about 500 copies of that book because I wanted it to be in the world. I wanted it to exist as a separate thing so that people could read that and then read what, the, what it had become. Now this, this uh the um, subterranean press version. Mm -hmm. um, 
this is a significantly longer book, and, and one of the things that I do like uh, about this is how wild it is. I think it really is, um, in many ways, it, it's one of my favorite books of yours. It really <laughs> <laughs> I'm amazed that you've seen it. I, I have an ARC. Very good. So, Excellent. Um, so uh, tell us about, uh, one of the things that, that I like about your work is your ability to create situations that are very weird mm. and very creepy and, and have lots of overt supernatural elements in mm -hmm. them, mm. but don't um, feel like the supernatural. They feel like the everyday world, the craziness mm -hmm. uh, that we see around us. Mm -hmm. Talk about translating the craziness that surrounds us into a supernatural that seems to be just one step, that di craziness dialed up to yeah. one more notch. Yeah. Um. That, that is probably a result of having, having it match the characters uh, very closely. So, so in, in a certain sense, the, the craziness seems to have been distilled out of them before it is projected onto the world. I'm, I've never been interested in purely exterior evil or purely exterior phenomenon because they exist, but, but it's much more interesting, far more usual to have the person himself, herself, contribute to, to their own atmosphere, uh, either knowingly or not. Um, it's, that's particularly rich if you are going to take the risk of dealing with the supernatural, which um, automatically uh, makes, makes the reader raise his her eyebrow or her eyebrow uh, in the kind of wonderment and perhaps um, uh, skepticism. When your readers uh encounter the the supernatural in in your works mm -hmm. uh, um one of the things that's that's really enjoyable is that it is essentially just this e extension uh, of the characters mm -hmm. um could you talk about researching the supernatural the this the purely external supernatural aspects so that they're more useful so they're more easily to integrate into the characters because you do a great job of that i don't think i do research at all in that kind uh what what the things i do research about are are things uh, firmly of this world that that i need to know a good deal about to, to make it convincing uh the primary example in, in my work has was um, the vietnam war I, I, to write, I wanted to write about it, and for very personal reasons, but, but I, I hadn't been there. So I had to do a lot of work reading uh, all sorts of books about it, including uh, a, a bunch of very valuable book, books published by the Army itself, uh, about the Green Beret movement, about certain battles, about certain officers uh, during the, the Vietnam co conflict, and then talking to veterans. Um, I always want to get the smell right. I, I, I want to get the feel right. And if you do that convincingly, then you can kind of persuade the reader that something extra has been leaking out of the woodwork, um, something irrational and uh, very much to be feared, probably. You're currently uh, adap having the talisman adapted into a graphic novel, and you've done some other work in that regard. That's right. T talk about that, because that's very different from the kind of, I think, very literary work you do, or is it? Well, I, 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 I very much like the medium of the graphic novel. I, I, I would not know anything about it had not a clerk in a, in a comic book store that doubled as, as a video rental store told me one day when I walked in there that I, should that I would probably like Neil Gaiman and that I would probably like the Sandman. I said, oh, really? Would I? Okay. 
So I bought, I bought a Sandman book and wham, it was so brilliant, you know. It was such a great story and it was executed really marvelously. Anyhow, it took a long time from that moment for, for me to be, uh, become involved in graphic novels, though, though I've been reading them ever since. But what pulled the trigger, as it were, in my case, was uh, having been invited by DC Vertigo to think with them about either a, writing a new work that, that worked that uh, dealt with w one of their continuing characters or to write something completely new for them. I, um, I said, you know, I love it, uh, I'm flattered, but I don't want to work that hard. Uh, by coincidence, my very good friend and my, my um, uh, one of my soap opera friends, Michael Easton, uh, who's an immensely interesting and uh, a really stirring s s sort of a guy. Easton Press? Hmm? Easton Press? No, um, Michael Easton is his name. He plays Le Lieutenant John McBain on One Life to Live. And I, I, on One Life to Live, am, am now and then uh, retired blind detective Pete Broust. So <laughs> this is because of my friendship with Michael. <laughs> so he, uh, we became friends uh, because he had read Coco out loud to his dying mother, which uh, was quite a thing uh, for me. I mean, it's very moving. Um, he had, at the time I met him, he was just completing work on a graphic novel called Soul Stealer. He asked if I would read it and uh, tell him anything came to mind. So I read it, uh, I had some dialogue suggestions, and when Vertigo asked me, and, and I turned him down, I then said to Vertigo, but I know this guy, Michael Easton, done something very interesting, and he doesn't have a publisher for it yet, uh, please, please talk to him. Michael went along to the office of our editor, Jonathan Bankin, Jonathan Bankin said, well, this actually isn't for us, you'll get it published, uh, because it's very good, but it's not our kind of thing, but why don't you and Peter work together on something? We met at a bar afterwards. He told me this thing. He told me that proposal, and I said, yeah, all right. That, you know, that, that means um, I have someone to share the work with. And we, just, we were off then. Uh, we we, we uh, began t talking about a character from The Throat whose name is Franklin Bachelor. Mm. Yeah. Oh, man. Fielding Bandelier. <laughs> wow. Franklin Bachelor. <laughs> Frank Belknap. He's got all these names that are, that are FB names, mm -hmm. and he is a deeply... Uh, sick, uh, perverted, um, cunning p piece of work. Uh, we don't really know a lot about what happens to him in Vietnam, though we know that he went seriously off the rails and had his own little heart of darkness uh, uh, in which he killed a great many people and then uh, for some reason killed, boiled, and ate his beautiful wife. Um, so there was, a, there was something to work with there, all right? <laughs> <laughs> and and, and we, we set to work, and uh, it took us like six to eight months, and we had written a 140-page graphic novel. Wow. Which, um, you know, was edited and uh, revised, but was accepted pretty much as, as, as we wrote it. And then it was given to John Bolton, who had just finished doing all the drawings. So it took him three years, I think. Uh, which is excruciatingly long, and not, but anyhow, now it's all it's almost finished, and it'll, it'll come out in 2010. It's called The Green Woman, and uh, it's uh, a, a lot of Michael is in there, and a lot of me. The Talisman was a much more uh, uh, r remote project, because of course, 
the, it, it's, it's a transcription of an existing book mm-hmm. done by people we never met. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the woman, Robin Firth, I think is her name, mm-hmm. who, um, who, who basically wrote it, is a, a, is a real Stephen King expert, a kind of Stephen King scholar, and she knew every nuance of that story. Uh, so she, she did for it what, what Michael and I did for the story we evolved. And all I know about it is that uh, every now and then I'm asked to, to, to do thumbs up or thumbs down on a character depiction or on a bit of action. Uh, we, we get shown roughs, we get shown black and white drawings, we get shown finished drawings, we, we get show, we're showing the, you know, when they ink in the, the, the letters. And um, they're, they're not going to do anything uh, that we won't approve of. So we, 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 we say yes at every step, almost always. But uh, that's the extent of our involvement. And I'm, I'm, I've been reading as it goes along, and I think it's great. Mm. They've done a wonderful job. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm very pleased with it. I, I'd like to sell the film rights to that, you know? Now, That'd be very good. Well, that brings up another question. Are, are we going to be lucky enough to see a movie of any of your works? Oh, that would be nice. It's, that's always uh, a deep game, um, and the moves are, are, are made. Uh, the, the, the moves made today might pay off in 20 years. One doesn't know. Um, two films are inching toward actual possibility, however, uh, there's, there, there are people who've been working on Coco for eight, eight or nine years, and now finally, apparently, they have a really great script, and they want to use the great script to attract a really good director. The other one is Shadowland, which uh, oh, is, is, is virtually all set to shoot. Um, the, the, the production company that has developed it is, uh, tr- is trying to cast young actors now for it. And if they get the right actors, they'll get the funding, and then we can go ahead. Boy, that sounds great. I remember reading that book. That was a wonderful reading experience. I remember writing. (laughs) (laughs) I've been speaking with Peter Straub. He's the editor of the new Library of America, American Fantastic Tales, and his forthcoming book is A Dark Matter. Thank you for joining me, Peter. It's been fun. Thanks. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom slash agony.